Hi, Rob. Oh, hey. We're trying to figure out how to get my camera on. Technical difficulties here. This is why the man has Michael Bay do these things. Yeah, no kidding. This is this is not this is below your pay grade, Jerry. One hundred percent. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> My guest today, how can I put this? It's like seeing a Sasquatch in the wild. This man does not do interviews. Doesn't have to. He could buy and sell us all. He is a man of few words. He's the Michael Corleone school of power. He is truly on the Mount Rushmore of producers. He's Jerry Bruckheimer. At one point, three of his TV series were in the top 10. He's been nominated for 77 Emmys. He's won 17 of them. 41 Oscars. Won six of them. Eight Grammys. Won five of them. 23 Golden Globes. Won four of them. His movies include Flashdance, Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun, Armageddon, Bad Boys, Remember the Titans, Black Hawk Down, the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. I, I, I could go on and on. This is a font of entertainment knowledge, and I am so excited to be able to pick his brain. Because like I said, he doesn't talk to many people, but he talks to us. Hey, thank you for doing this, man. I know I can't even remember the last time I ever, I, you don't do many interviews, I don't think. I don't think you, really? The only time I do them is when we have a movie about to come out. Right. They're pretty private. Uh, when we have a film, I go out and promote it. Right, right. Gotcha. Um, did you know the actor Bill Paxton? Sure, of course. He was. He used to give me the best career advice, Jerry. I, I was doing a, a TV series Um. And I, the series was uh, predicated on me being a, a running for president and sort of a, the American president type of vibe was my character. And, and it was with Sally Field and Calista Flockhart and it was called um, Brothers and Sisters. And then the network one day decided they didn't want to do any more political stories. So I ended up having to do all these like house husband stories where – I was like baking pies with Sally as opposed to running around with the Secret Service and motorcades. And I was complaining to Bill Paxton about it. Right. He goes, God, buddy, that's a one-way ticket to Palookaville for you, man. <laughs> you got him. You got him perfect. He says, America doesn't want to see Rob Lowe in oven mitts. <laughs> Funny. So, so damn good. Um, well, Jerry, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with you because – I'm such a fan of yours and what you've done and uh, both in, in movies and, and in TV. And I mean, I think I want to start with, with the 80s because that's when I first was aware of you. I remember reading the script for Top Gun. People always ask me, was there ever a movie that you wanted to do and you didn't get? And there's always that. You know, as an actor, you're up for things and the director isn't like, whatever. There's always that list you're on. But I remember reading Top Gun sitting in Barry Hirsch's waiting room right and reading that script and going this movie is going to be the biggest movie ever and of course tom, i think tom was always going to be that guy isn't that pretty much right true he was the only guy we really went out to but i remember going this movie is this movie is going to be just absolutely magnificent what was your 
how did you really come up with the idea seeing a picture on a magazine cover? Yeah, it was New West Magazine, I think it was called, which has now become LA Magazine. And it was a story about this school in, in Miramar, California. And I saw this photograph of this jet pilot and another pilot, I think, upside down uh, uh, from another plane uh, against it. And I said, wow, this is Star Wars for real. And I read the article and I went into Don's office and I threw the, the magazine on his desk and he, he said, shit, we got to get this. And uh, we called uh, our development uh, young lady at the time and he said, get this article, get, get the rights. So through a bunch of maturations, we got a hold of the magazine and the author and, and bought, the, uh, bought the rights to it. And was the actual first article about the Top Gun school? Exactly. It was all about the school. And, you know, I didn't know they had, you know, names. All the pilots had names, you know, Maverick and, you know, all the different names that we, we had. Uh, Iceman. But we used, uh, we made up our own course. And Cash and Epps were two writers that at the time Paramount loved. We sent them the article and they flipped over it. And they wrote the the. the the draft that I guess we turned into the studio. But what was interesting is a TV show at the time was about the air was on about at the Air Force, and unfortunately nobody tuned it in. So the Paramount management said, "Well, people don't want to see Aviators. Forget it. We're not going to make it." And unfortunately for them, or maybe fortunately for them, they changed managements, and a new man, a new head of the studio came in, named Ned Tannen. Oh, my gosh, sure. You remember him? Of course. So, Ned called Don and myself, and he said, what do you guys got? Uh, Cupboard's bare. Just tell me what movies you're developing. And we said, we have this movie, Top Gun, we're real excited about, and we have a director, Tony Scott, and we'd love to get it made. And he said, well, come over to my house. Get Tony up here. So, Tony flies in from London, jet-lagged like crazy. We're sitting in Ned Tannen's house Don and myself, and Ned has a dog also, and Tony's just petting the dog. And Ned turns to Tony, says, well, tell me the story. And Tony just totally froze, couldn't say a word. So Don, <laughs> the ultimate salesman, uh, just great storyteller, brilliant guy, tells the story that we developed. And then Ned looks to me, says, Jerry, what's this going to cost? And I said, I think around $14 million. And, he, and then he turned to us and said, go make it. Uh, but are you sure this wow. guy can direct it? The only thing he knows how to do is pet the dog. And we <laughs> said, no, we, we have a lot of faith in him. He's, he's a, an amazing visual artist, good storyteller. He'd only done The Hunger at that point, plus a That's lot. Right. The, this Tony Scott is, of course, Ridley's younger? Younger brother. That's right. Yeah. Um, was he wearing his fishing jacket in the meeting, the fishing vest? I don't think he had that fishing vest at that time. I think was he wearing the pink hat yet? He might have had the pink hat on. He might have had the pink hat. Was he smoking a Monte Cristo number two? Of course. Of the course. Best. Yeah. Um, so when that movie, well, first of all, and then Don Simpson, your original partner. I mean, Simpson-Bruckheimer movies were so, before anybody branded anybody, those were... Those movies, all all your movies had, you know, whether it's, you know, Beverly Hills Cop, Crimson Tide, or, or all those movies were ha- Flashdance had, they felt like I, only you guys could have made them. 
I felt like. I remember seeing Flashdance. Um, I remember I remember being in two movie theaters and seeing the audience go absolutely ballistic at the ending. One was Rocky and the other was Flashdance. And the audience just went crazy. Do you remember what do you remember what it was like the first time you saw that kind of flash dance that worked so well? Well, it was we reshot the ending uh, of the movie. We didn't reshoot it. We added elements to the ending to make it more satisfying for the audience. And that's when it exploded. Uh, once we added uh, some more of her dancing, uh, we really made a, 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 a real a moment out of it. And that was partially because, you know, management at the time was Eisner and I think it was Katzenberg were there. And they said, look, we got to make this ending even more satisfying. So they encouraged us to go back and pick up some more footage on her dance, her last dance recital. Now, just just because it's been a long time and the movie occupies such a big place in the zeitgeist, I want to make sure I got the log line right. She's a female welder that just really wants to dance. She'd rather stop welding and start dancing. That's sort of the movie, is it not? Suppressing her dream uh, to be, uh, uh, I guess, a dancer. And she, uh, fortunately for, for her and her career, she found this venue where she could dance. I remember in that moment in time in the 80s, every movie had to take place in like an Appalachian steel town. Well, we, we made her a real strong working working lady. Real tough. We like that. Like tough women, tough, smart women. Uh, no, for sure. That, and that was an early with Jennifer Beals. I remember fresh out of Yale, correct? That's right. It's it's interesting because we we had this countrywide search for the, the, the girl to play the part. And we had, I think, two or three candidates. And then casting director called us up and said, look, I have this girl in my office right now. I used her as an extra on one of our movies. I think it was on a Tony Bill movie. And you guys should see her. She just got in from Europe. She spent the summer in Europe. So she comes in and she has no makeup on. <clears throat> she has a sack dress on. Her hair is kind of, you know, curly and all over the place. And Adrian looks at her, reads her for a few minutes and said, this is the girl. And I say, Adrian, you're kidding. But Adrian said, just get me a makeup artist and I'll do a test with her. So we tested her and I think it was two other girls and she, the makeup and this, I still have a photograph of her, the way he made her up. She was absolutely gorgeous. And he was right. I mean, he picked her from the beginning. He was passionate about her. Some of the folks at Paramount like one of the other girls. So it was a real, a real interesting dust up of who's going to get the part. So Michael Eisner, nobody could decide who was the girl. So Michael Eisner calls a group of the, the assistants in to the screening room, shows them all three tests, and they all walk out and sit. It's Jennifer Beals. So the assistants, yes. So the assistants picked Jennifer Beals. They agreed with Adrian. And they, and you'd ask the girls. You didn't ask guys. No, it was. I don't think there were male assistants on that floor. Right. So it was, it was the women that picked her. Do you just out of curiosity? Do you remember who the other actress was who didn't get it? I do not remember the other one. I don't remember their names. It's been a long time. 82. Yeah. A long, a long time. Well, you're t Tony Scott, Adrian line two of the great visualist. I mean, those guys are some of my favorite, favorite directors too, but 
and Schrader directed American Gigolo, correct? And that's, is that really sort of your first big credit in the movies? Yeah, that was my first, I guess, break. I mean, I made uh, A Farewell of My Lovely with Robert Mitchum before that, which became oh my a God. But, but I guess that was the, the one that really, really set us apart. Um, that movie is amazing. I, it's, I don't want to say it's underappreciated because it, it's very appreciated, but I'm always talking to people about American Gigolo and wanting people to watch American Gigolo. I'm trying to get my boys to watch it right now. Um, th- that movie is is just such a masterpiece. But one of my favorite, because I, I watched it recently, th- the way that we watch movies and, and audiences' tastes, uh, particularly around pacing, have changed so much. There's no way you could open that movie with Richard Gere taking an eternity to figure out his clothes. That opening credit sequence is literally like, I like this shirt. No, I don't like this shirt. What about that tie? What about that? There's no no way would you approve that cut today, I don't think. Well, what was interesting is the, the way the country was in, in those days, it was work shirts and blue jeans. Nobody got dressed up other than bankers, lawyers. That was it. So we decided to f- try to find out who's the best designer, men's clothing designer, new, fresh designer. So we talked to somebody at Women's Wear Daily, and they said, you should look up this guy, Giorgio Armani. Nobody had ever heard of Giorgio Armani. So it, it, really? Yeah. No, it was, he was just in Italy at the time. Wow. And at the time, the, it wasn't Richard Gere. It was John Travolta in the part. John Travolta just had a huge success with Saturday Night Fever. Or, uh, I think it was, I'm not sure if he ever came before us or after us, but he was a, or Greece. He was in. And Urban Cowboy. Urban Cowboy. Well, that was after us, I think. Oh, it was after you. Uh, <clears throat> so Paramount had a deal with him, a pay or play deal. They're going to have to pay him unless they put him in a movie. So, you know, we thought he was fabulous. We, 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 uh, went to Milan to meet Giorgio Marani, Maroder with I mean, Giorgio Armani with Travolta. And it was a riot in the Paris airport because he was such a star. We had to have a police around him, get him on the plane, get him off. We meet Armani. He loves John. He measures him, gets all the clothes. We get all the clothes made for him and come back. And then John decides he doesn't want to do the movie. What, what was his reason? What did he decide? Why? What they told us was that his girlfriend had just died. He just finished another movie. He was tired. He wanted to just take some time off. So, right. Gone. So they turned to us and said, who, who would you guys want to hire? And at the time, Christopher Reeve was, was a big movie star coming off of Superman. So they sent him the script on a Friday and they said the budget was obviously much higher with Travolta. It was like 17 or $18 million. And so we decided, Paul and myself, so we'd rather have Richard Gere, who just came off of Mr. Goodbar. Mm-hmm. And he, we thought he was a sexy, talented young actor. So we slipped him the script at the same time. Ooh. And uh, Monday morning, we get a call from, I think it was Katzenberg, and says, Christopher Reeves has passed. So we said, we, Richard Gere would like to do it. And he said, Richard Gere? Why Richard Gere? Well, he's sexy, he's good, he's a wonderful actor. And they, again, turned to me, said, that what, we're not going to make this movie with Richard Gere at $17 million. It's not going to happen. 
so I work with our line producer or, or, or I don't know, with our line producer or our production manager. And we got the budget down to like $8 million. So we went back in, Richard Gere, $8 million, and they greenlit the movie. Wow. And how did you get Joe, Giorgio Moroder to do the this, this score? Was that the first of his score or had you done Midnight Express Midnight previously? Express that. But I loved his songs. I thought he was a great mm-hmm. songwriter, great producer. Yep. So I went to the, the head of publishing at Paramount and said, I would love to meet Giorgio Moroder. Can you set that up? So I met with Giorgio. I gave him the script. And uh, he, he loved it. And he wrote the songs for it and did the score. Got very lucky. It's a very, yeah, it's a very atmospheric. I mean, the whole Palm Springs sequence when they take off and the, the music. I mean, anytime I'm in a convertible at night, that's like, the, that's the theme that's playing in my head is the American gigolo. I could, did I see correctly in your filmography that you're working, that you, at least your company is working on some sort of new iteration of American gigolo? Or am I, am we, I we mistaking are, that? We're developing a pilot uh, for television uh, based on American gigolo. It's a great idea. It is a great idea. So that's in the works. That's it. Well, you're so well, I'm going to jump around a ton, but sure. You know, um, other than maybe Dick Wolf, I mean, no one has cracked the code of television better than you have, particularly coming from movies um, with this, with the C- starting with the CSI franchise. Now is. Is this, is this, is it's Zyker is the original guy, correct? Right. Is it, is it true? Is it, is the, is the apocryphal story true that he was a, a tram operator in Las Vegas who came up with this initial idea? Yeah. His, his name is Anthony Zyker. Anthony Zyker. Yes. And the story is that he was, had this idea to do this thing on, on CSI. So he called the Vegas police department and said, I'd like to ride around with uh, some of your texts and see what happens when they go on a, uh, when they go on a murder investigation. So they, they pull up in front of the CD motel and they, there's a body in this motel room and they remove the body and they take it back to the, to the ambulance and Zyker innocently walks in the, in the motel room himself, he starts walking around and all of a sudden a hand comes out from under the bed. The murderer was still in the room what? <laughs> when Zyker was there. So nobody had checked under the bed. <laughs> so that's one of his great stories. So whoa, we pitched the idea for it to every network except for CBS. And everybody had passed. So we go in to meet with Nina Tassler at CBS. Wow. And Zyker is a real interesting guy. He's a one another great salesman. He, he but he paces. So when he pitches the story, he paces and he sweats and he acts out the parts and he's does fantastic. So he finishes his pitch and Nina says, I want it. In the room, she bought the, bought the pilot. And that was the start of CSI. Why, why do you think you can get passes on all those other networks and then you can go in somewhere else and they buy it the room? What, what's different? It's the same show. You know, it's all about their needs. They mm. they need a comedy because it was late in the development season. And so they picked up a lot of pilots already or, or committed to a lot right. of pilots. So that's, I think, one of the reasons. Well, that's one of the, the things that creative people and you're sort of as a, as a good producer, you, you're half creative, half business. But straight creative people forget that 
the world doesn't revolve around them. Like if I, if I go in there and I get turned down by three networks, I think it's on me. But the truth of it is, it's like, no, no, we just already bought three comedies. We have room for three comedies. We bought three and you're the fourth. It's exactly and, how it works. And and that's that's the part of the of the business that young actors and young writers and young directors don't don't get to see is is the just nuts and bolts decision making that has nothing to do with how they feel about you or your project sometimes more oftentimes than not. And it's so hard when you talk to a young actor and they come in and they do a terrific reading, but phys- their physical type isn't right. And you reject them and they walk out of the room thinking, oh, my God, you know, they hated me. My performance was terrible. Not true. He could have given a fantastic performance, but he didn't have the look that the director or the producers or the writers were looking for. And a lot of it, it's on physicality. Uh, but, you know, great actors are great actors and they'll always rise to the top. And I've seen so many actors come in and audition for us, didn't get roles, later on became huge successes and have phenomenal careers. How, how often are you at this stage or any stage involved in the, in the audition? Pro- like what, what level do you come in and start looking at the actors? I usually start looking at them once the director has, we do it now, everything's on, on, on video, you know? Uh, so once he has a, a, a group of who he likes, two or three actors for each part, then we'll come in and sit with them and make a choice or say, let's look further. Do you feel like that we've lost the convenience of the video is, is great, but we've lost that, that, that looking into their eyes and getting there. Cause all what you get now is I find this with, with casting on the shows that I, I'm producing is you can get actors now who are trained in delivering a perfect uh, sort of uh, self tape, mm-hmm. but you know, when they're self-taping, you can't go, that's great. Now, could you do it slower? Or, okay, that's great, but maybe like a little more intense. Like there's no give and take in direction that you would have normally before when you had the actors in the room. And then some of these folks get on the set and that's the only way they can do it. Have you have you noticed any any of that? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. But what we try to do is if it's a self-taper, we always try to bring them in. If they're if they're in the final final two or three, we've got to meet them. We got to look them in the eye. You know, CBS for years and years, I don't know if they still do it, but they make the actors, even though you put them on tape, you do all that kind of stuff, but they make the actors actually come into their theater and perform for the executives. They do the reading in their theater. So, wow. That's what, I don't know if they're still doing that, but that, that's how every CBS actor was picked for lead roles. How did the Who become the, the opening for all of the great uh, CSI uh, shows? I know you're a, a Who fan. Was it just that simple? No, it was. I think it was Zykers. One of our team came up with the idea for the Who, and you know, we very fortunately they agreed to do it. And boy, I tell you, they made a fortune on it, which is good. Oh, I know. I, I, I've. You know, we all I've licensed many a, a song, and I, I famously know how much they got per episode for twenty two a year and then you do the the the, the two out uh, the three shows total right right um and i also i i had a meeting with zyker once and i said no eminence front ever and he goes no we actually cut eminence front to the to the pilot of whatever the last spinoff was and and didn't and didn't go with eminence front yeah it's too bad 
It's a great one, right? Yeah, it's a great one. You're absolutely right. Um, of all of the stuff that you've done and how much I love it, the, my favorite thing ever might be, though, the supercut of David Caruso's one-liners <laughs> on YouTube that goes into the the. I mean, if 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 people haven't seen that, I highly recommend it. It's him doing his Carusoisms, and and then it goes right to the famous wow scream of the opening credits. It's, have you ever seen it? No, I haven't. I'll have to look it up. Oh, Jerry, it is. The, you are going to love it. It's like you know. I've seen the one where he takes his glasses on and off. I've seen. Yeah, that. and it's one after another after another after another. I played, a, um, I did a show called The Grinder for Fox. I'm really proud of a really funny show. We did one season of it, it was, and I played a a crazy, self-important, narcissistic actor who'd been on a 17-season uh, network procedural and now was having to find a new life. And I love Caruso. I love him, but I, I did rip off a lot of his stuff. In fact, I had his actual glasses from... From from CSI, and I took great pleasure and relish in whipping them off and doing what I called the crab walk. He had he had a thing where he would crab, he would put his hands on his hips and walk. Back. And do you know the whole thing about? Oh, I'm so glad I have you. Oh, this is the best. Do you know his thing about being a ghost? Did that ever make it up to your level? No, never heard that one. So, and I've had this multiple confirmed because it's one of those things you feel like, oh, it's the apocryphal story that's bullshit. I've had it confirmed. So his theory was that um, Horatio Kane, correct? Right. Was not an actual person. That Horatio Kane was a wraith. Right. Not a, not a ghost. Right. A wraith. And for, 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 for the discovery of evil people. And he would not be photographed because he's wraith. And as you know, wraiths don't enter or exit. That he would not be photographed entering and exiting. And if you look at the show, he's not. I believe it. I believe (laughs) I did not hear that, but who knows? All of the young writers would say, have you had the talk with David yet? And um, so I love, but, but actually it's also a great movie star thing. It's like, it's a very. It's just a great thing that never, never be filmed. Um, particularly exiting, entering is one thing. But if you watch all those shows, I, I think you can count on one hand the times that that David Caruso enters and exits. But I don't think people knew it's because he's a wraith. I didn't know that. So, and I produced. So you learn show. something new every day. You learn something about your career today from me that you never would have otherwise. Thank you so much, Rob. Oh, oh, you're Jerry. It's 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 the least I can do. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. I have been wanting to ask this question before I even started doing a podcast. I keep, because people always say to me whenever I do things, or people talk about acting, who do you like? What are the bold choices? Who are the greatest movie stars? Um, et cetera, et cetera. And I always say that I think the single bravest acting performance in the history of the motion picture business is Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean. I, I agree. I agree with I'm you. not kidding. I think Brando can fucking stand in line. Right. And, and here's why. 
Because, and, and this is where you get to say, Rob, you're full of shit when I'm done with this opening statement. Okay. Okay. So Johnny has done a career of weird, wonky, oddball, goofball parts. Some worked great. Some didn't. He'd try to play a leading man. He did a movie called like The Astronaut's Wife or something. Disaster. And it gets to the point where we all get in our career where they're like, not that many get out of jail free cards left. And Disney, meanwhile, has decided to make movies about their theme parks rides, which people are like, what? Wait, what? There's going to be a movie called The Haunted Man. Wait, what? So they do The Haunted Mansion, which is about The Haunted Mansion ride. Eddie Murphy does it. It's a disaster. So like, all right, we're going to do the most famous ride we have, which is Pirates of the Caribbean. It's a movie about a ride. Now, it's hard for people to remember it that way because it's become in our consciousness these amazing groups of movies, which they are. But originally, it's a movie about a ride. Correct. And so they go out to Johnny Depp. You hire Johnny Depp to play Captain Jack Sparrow. Errol Flynn, the, the pirate, the big leading man, swashbuckling, great jawbone, chiseled, handsome pirate man. And you get... What he gave you. Right. Tell me what that was like the first time you saw those dailies. Because there's no way you think you're getting that when, you, when you're developing that movie. Am I wrong? No, you're 100% right. The part was written like for, if he was alive, Burt Lancaster. That's who it was. Jesus. Young Burt Lancaster. That's, that's who Jack Sparrow was. We did a reading of the script at the Viper Room with some of the people we cast, including Johnny. Where, where, that's the first place you want to read a script. I know I do. Like, if they're going to like, hey, can we read, I like, let's do it next to all the vomit and the needles right. at the Viper Room. So he went to the Viper Room, and he started playing Jack Sparrow that you know, which was just hilarious, off the, off the wall character. So Disney says, well, they weren't there, but Disney said, we would like to see his costume. And, you know, you always do hair and makeup, right? And sure, so right. Do hair and makeup and costume, and he's got all his teeth are gold, right? So I get a call from, I think it was Dick Cook, and he said, we, we can't make this movie with him with all those gold teeth. I'm sorry, you know, this is Disney and on and on. The gold teeth is where he drew the line, not, not the crazy, blah, blah, blah. it's like well, gold seen, teeth. They hadn't seen that yet. Don't oh, shit. They hadn't seen, okay, my God. Okay, good. This is great. So we set a meeting with Johnny and Dick and myself. And so, you know, Dick says, well, you know, the teeth and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and Johnny says, listen, this is part of the character. So I created the character. He's got to have the teeth. And so I said, Johnny, just take a few of the teeth out. Just have, have some normal teeth in there. Just, you know, accent it with the gold. It's better. Because you don't want the audience just looking at your mouth. You want them to focus on your performance. So don't right. make such a spectacle. And he agreed to, to do that. And then Disney was happy with the look. Now, when the first couple of days of dailies came in, that was the total freak out. Oh, my God. <laughs> what is he drunk? Is he gay? What is this character? What are you guys doing? This is awful. And when you look at dailies, as you know, because you're a producer and an actor and you see stuff, 
you know, you get a variation of performances, right? Some are really outrageous and some are a little more subdued. Sure. Sure. So I said to them, I said, "Let, let us cut a sequence together just so you can see what he's doing. And we cut a sequence together and they became more comfortable. They were never really comfortable with the performance. And it was, it scared them half to death. And it's really interesting because there was no merchandising done for the movie. They had very little faith in the movie. First of all, Country Bears, which was another one of their rides that they made, tanked. You already haunted house tanked. And now we're doing Pirates. And when they came to us, they said, we want to make, you got to make it for $50 million. That's what those other movies cost. And we had sea battles and we're in the Caribbean. There's no way mm-hmm. we could have made it for that amount of money. And they wanted it to, to be a PG movie or a G movie. And I went to Dick and I said, Dick, you can't constrain Johnny to a PG or a G movie. It's just not who this guy is. You don't want that. You want this movie to be from eight to 80. That's what you want. And I promised him that we let me do it PG-13. And uh, Dick agreed. I said, there won't be any terrible language, but it'll be edgy. Won't, no sexuality. We finally agreed to do it. That was the first PG-13 movie Disney had ever made. Wow. I didn't. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Got to give it to, to the, the, the executives at, at Disney for allowing us to do that. And Gore Verbinski is somebody I loved, Mouse Hunt, that he did and some of his other things. So he was a young director. So we were very fortunate. We sent him an outline. He agreed to do this based off an outline. And he was a sought-after director. And I flew to, to south of France, where Johnny was living, with just some storyboards and, and big visuals uh, to show him the, the, the character. And, and we had like a four-hour lunch. I don't know how many bottles of wine. And he agreed to do it. So that's how we got him to, to be in the movie. It's kind of a roundabout story, but. No, but that's, a, that's absolutely am- amazing. I mean, like for, for you to, to, to be able to embrace that, knowing they probably, years later, I think they made, did you, it might've been one of your movies. Was it Prince of Persia? Was that you? Yeah, that was us. Yeah. Because so when I watched Prince of Persia and I saw Jake in that, I thought, that's probably what they thought they were getting when, when right. they hired Johnny. Exactly. Right. Exactly right. And to see for you to see that at the Viper Room and go, I'm going to go toe to toe with Disney because they're going to freak. What's interesting is it, my career is built on choices, choices for directors, choices for writers, choices for actors. And if I believe somebody's really talented, I will move mountains to make sure that they get their vision, whatever that is. If it's a director, if it's a writer, if it's an actor, if I believe in that talent, I will go against anybody to convince them that we have the goods. And you got to take chances. That's what happened with Jack Sparrow. That was a huge chance. Huge. Huge. I I mean, I'm not kidding when I say I think it's the gutsiest, most important acting choice of in modern cinema because the stakes people don't realize how high the stakes were. Sure. It's it's one it's one thing to go take a big swing in some indie movie. Do, do you know what I'm saying? But when it's it's you and it's Disney and it's all of that and you it you gotta it, you're at that time in your career as an actor where you, it's time to deliver a hit. Right. Pretty much. Yeah. And 
and and you go for that. I mean, he'll always be in the Hall of Fame for me with with, with that one and you guys for for enabling it. Just no, unbelievable. He's a very inventive actor, and and he you know he had a young daughter at the time, and he was watching a lot of cartoons uh, with his daughter, and he he fell in love with the character Pepe Le Pew. And uh, that's part of his performance is kind of Pepe Le Pew-like. So that's another how we draw from real life and what your life is going through at the time as, as an artist. Somebody once told me that, um, that uh, Hannibal Lecter, right. that, uh, that um, Anthony Hopkins based Hannibal Lecter on how the computer in 2001 – Olivier in The Entertainer and Catherine Hepburn. I don't know where the Catherine Hepburn came from, but I understand. I think it, it comes from, it's the little, it's like the slight, tra- but it, it, it just, I love that. I mean, listen, if Johnny Depp can make a character out of Pepe Le Pew, he can make it out of Hal and The Entertainer. Uh, it was a combination of Pepe Le Pew and, and Keith Richards. Keith was a buddy of his. He used to come over all the time and you know, he'd, he'd, he'd go in Johnny's closet and say, this is a great jacket. He'd try it on and he'd walk around the room in the jacket and then he'd leave. He'd take Johnny's jacket. <laughs> so uh, he based it on how he walked and how he talked and, and a little bit of Pepe Le Pew. So it was a combination of the two. I have to at some point dig up the, uh, the short film that Charlie Sheen and I made with Johnny when, when – uh, when Johnny had just done was no, I think he was just getting cast in um, the TV series. And uh, what was the TV series he did when he was a, a kid? It was um, 21 jump street. Right. And uh, Charlie had this idea. And he, I think Charlie spent like fifth, like 15 grand of his own money when he was 20, which is a lot of money to blow up a photo mat. Remember photo mats where you go and deliver your film and they do it overnight. So the, the whole predicate of this eight millimeter movie that Charlie shot starring Johnny Depp was that uh, they didn't deliver Johnny's film on time. And so he blew the thing up with an RPG. And I think it was really just an ex- it was called RPG. And it was just an excuse to blow something up up on Point Doom in Malibu. But somewhere that movie exists. I'm sure it's great. I think we need to put the famous uh, Bruckheimer logo. Now's the time to, to get it out there. People are just sitting home looking at YouTube videos. So this is it. We'll be right back after this. Tell me about the new Top Gun. Am I am so pumped? And look, I'm kind of I'm kind of jaded. I'm like, I kind of feel like I've seen everything, done everything, and I but and I don't really get it up that much to go out. But I'm so there for that movie. Good. You have no idea. Good. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, the flying sequences are the best that have ever been filmed. Uh, Tom, you know, is an aviator himself. He flies helicopters. He flies jets. He, you know, he does aerobatic work. He has his own uh, single-engine plane, World War II plane that he has. And he's just a, an aviation genius. He can do anything in the air. And he wanted to bring the audience inside the cockpit and tell the story about these very courageous aviators. It's really the love of aviation. That's what the movie's about. And so what he did is he had every actor, he told them, you're going to have to learn how to sit in an F-18 and feel the G-forces. Because on the first movie, we put the actors in an F-14, and every one of them threw up, and we couldn't use Mm -hmm. one frame of footage, except for Tom. 
we got a, some footage on Tom, uh, and he wasn't even a pilot then. He just, but he's he's you know he's got a mindset to get anything done. And so this time he said, we're going to train you for three months. So the first thing you got to do is you got to go through through in, escape from the from the from the jet into water because they do this water safety thing that you do. So what they do, among other things, is they put you in a cage, they blindfold you, they put you in the water, and they turn the cage upside down. You got to figure out how to get out. So that's just one of the little things that they do uh, to train you. And then they put you in the cockpit of a of a helicopter and they dunk you and flip you and turn you. And you got to figure out how to open the door and how to get out. So that's the first thing they started with. Then Tom put them in just a, a single engine prop plane, just a normal single, just so that they get the, the sense of flying. Then he put them in an aerobatic prop, which they started to feel some G forces, you know, they roll them and flip them. And then he put them in a jet, an aerobatic jet. And then they really started to feel the, the difference and of the speed of a real jet versus a, a prop. And after they mastered that and stopped throwing up, he put them in the F-18, which takes it to a, a, a 10 times the level of a, just a normal jet. And so they had to endure uh, flying in these, in these planes uh, for three months. So once we got them up in the air, they were accustomed to the G-forces, but you can see it on their faces. You'll see how they're stretched and, you know, they almost pass out. A couple of them did pass them because you got to, what you have to do is you have to force the blood to your head. So you have yes. to constantly grunt and get the blood up there so you don't pass out. And they were spectacular. Every one of them, just three months of going through that. You know, an actor normally will rehearse for two weeks and then start start the movie. But this was a whole different thing. We And we also had a, we built a, a cockpit on the ground. So what we would do is we'd run their lines on the ground before they went up in the plane. But don't forget, they had to be the cameraman too. So we had five cameras in the cockpit filming them. And they had to turn the camera on, turn the camera off. And in order to save their lines, they had the sun had to be in a certain position because that because we'd already done some of the aerial stuff. So you knew the you know, sun was behind them or in front of them. So when they did a certain line, because you wanted to cut outside to see the jet, the sun had to be in the same place. So they had to remember where the sun was, what lines they had to say when the sun was at position. They had to turn the thing on and off. And it's so easy to start acting and forget to turn the camera on. Oh. So they had to go through this. And Tom, what's interesting about Tom, you know him, how, how dedicated he is. He did the briefings on all the flights because you do a briefing before the flight and you do a debrief after the flight. This takes hours besides being in the air, being up in the air and being exhausted, getting up at four or five in the morning uh, to do these sorties with these phenomenal Navy aviators who are just fantastic and helped us just make, make, make this movie as spectacular as it turned out to be. He, uh, so the, the, um, I was wondering about this when Tom is flying the plane, cause he's an aviator. Right. Is he, he's not flying that F-18. Is he possibly? Well, let me put it this way. He could. He pretty, could, yes. He could very easily. Uh, but the government, you know, these are Wouldn't let really, really expensive yeah. planes. So that's, it's yeah. not in the cards. But he easily could step in and fly that plane in a second. It would, it, it's, it's certainly, and he's ready to do it. He could do it if they'd have let him. And we tried, believe me, we tried to get him to do it. Oh, I I believe it with Tom. He's I yeah I, but that 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 um, that uh the both of the, all of the teasers 
all of the coming attraction trailers are as good as anything I've ever seen. I'm it just you just want to tear the seats out. I'm you're I'm so ready. And and so the new um the new release date is Christmas. Is that right? It is. It is. Let's hope everything is good by then and we can get a movie out. Hopefully we'll be open sooner for films. That's one of the ones. I mean, that's a movie. I, I'm I'm all for streaming, but that's a movie you got to you want to see in a theater. Oh, yeah. For sure. Big. It's it's enormous. And the sounds are fantastic. And Hans Zimmer doing the score with Harold Faltermeyer was the original composer. It is really a spectacular film. I can't wait for everybody to see it. Um, let's see what I, 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 okay. So I had, um, I had, uh, John Lovitz on the show a while back and he was telling me, and I think John's a big liar. So I, I just, I just, so he created that. Again. He created that character. So yeah, he was at, exactly. He tried, he tried to sell us that bad boys, your movie was originally going to be him. Well, it was originally going to be him and Dana Carvey. What come? I mean, it's a different approach, obviously. But yes, it was him and, and Dana Carvey and Michael Bay did a test with them. And it, for whatever reason, Disney didn't go for it. And so the project became dormant for a while. We tried. No, what really happened is Dana dropped out. Mm, I so see. That was, we were left with John. There's varying stories of what happened. On, there's John's version and other people's version. But the yes. movie never got made with John and somebody else. Uh, so... I never give up. I just never do. When I believe in a movie, I just, till I can get it made, I just keep pushing, pushing, pushing. And I met, somebody set me up with a young actor named uh, Will Smith, who was basically a TV actor. He'd done one movie previously. This guy comes in, he's charming, he's funny, he's handsome. And I said, this is the guy. And then one of the executives at Sony, because the picture was, moved over to Sony when Disney passed. We moved mm-hmm. And they were more excited about making the movie. So we had Will, but Will wasn't a big enough star. Martin Lawrence was a bigger star at the time than Will was. And we sent the, the script to first Arsenio Hall, because he was the hottest guy in the business at the time. And unfortunately he passed, or well, fortunately for Will, he passed. And then we went on to Martin, who loved it and wanted to make it. Martin got the movie made and that pairing is, you know, obviously we just had another huge success with the, with the third one and we're developing a fourth one. So, but Will is so talented and we had two, we're very lucky. We had two really talented people, three talented people. We had the two actors and Michael Bay, Michael Bay, this is his first movie and he coming off commercials where you know, he gets to do basically what he wants. Now, when you're making a movie, you got to follow the script. you got to listen to the studio. And fortunately, when you do commercials, you have to deal with a client. If you shoot, right. he, he did that. Yep. No commercials. you got to deal with the advertising agency. And the, so he understood how to deal with the studio, which was great. You know, he got the sense you had to get what you wanted, but also make them feel they were getting what they wanted. So he did an excellent job. Um. I gotta uh, tell me what is your obsession with hockey? Where does that come from? But for 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 people listening in, Jerry is I, I don't even know how to. I mean, you have kept hockey alive in show business. You're you're you have your own league. I mean, I'll let you tell it. But when sure. I think of when I think of hockey, I mean, you're mis, you're literally Mister Hockey. What Nicholson is to the Lakers, you are to hockey. Well, here's where it started when I was. Is seven or eight years old. My dad, I grew up in Detroit. 
My dad took me to a Red Wing game. It was in this old arena called the Olympia Arena, where you're basically almost over the ice. We were way up in the nosebleed section, but you were hanging over the ice. It was a fantastic experience. And at, at that time, the, the Red Wings were kind of like the Lakers in their heyday. They were a great team, and they won a lot of Stanley Cups. So I went to some really exciting games with my dad. And then I said, well, maybe I should start learning how to play this game. So I got, as a Christmas gift, I got a pair of skates and convinced him to give me a stick and a helmet and the whole thing. So I started to learn how to skate. And I, I, I lived about three blocks from a drive-in. This was in Detroit. So in the winter, it's cold. Drive-ins are closed. But, in, but you know, there are humps where your car goes up on a hump. So in yeah. between the humps, there's valleys, and there used to be water in there. And so we used to play in the valleys ah. there when it was ice. So I'd walk three blocks, carry my equipment, play the freezing cold, and became obsessed with it. So I was always somebody who liked to organize things. So I took a bunch of our neighborhood buddies that played with us, and I created a team. And we had to go... I don't know, we had to take buses if parents, my mom didn't drive at the time. So I had to take a bus to go to the rink. Our games were at seven, so I had to get up at five. And sometimes my dad took me, but I had this little team. We weren't very good. In fact, we were terrible. But that was my experience of playing hockey. But unfortunately, I didn't follow it up until back when Gretzky came to L.A. And I said, well, maybe I should start taking skating lessons because I never could afford skating lessons when I first started playing. So I started taking skating lessons and I put another group of guys together and we played in Pasadena, some actors, some, you know, people who I knew loved hockey. And then we eventually moved to where the Kings practice now. We have a game every Sunday night. And then uh, we have, there's another game Monday night that I play in. So Sunday and Monday is when I usually can play hockey. And what were the, what were the legendary Vegas one that was because well, those were legendary. I'm the organizer. So I started a tournament in Vegas and we went on for 23 years. Yes. Started with like, there were, I think 20 of us, Marty McSorley, I think being one of them. And what we do is we'd have, we'd had, had two teams. We used to have one or two pros on each team. So a bunch of bums, myself included, and with these pros, it was the greatest thing ever. And it developed into six teams where every team had three or four pros. And we had over 150 guys, friends coming and playing. Uh, and then it dwindled back down to four teams. But now it's we're all just spread everywhere. Now we're playing with their kids. Wow. Guys I started with, they're kids. In fact, one of them is going to be drafted in the first round of the NHL draft. He's in the, looks like he'll be in the first round. Really? Yeah, so that's how it. Now, and, maybe, do, you, do you get to draft as an expansion? But congratulations, by the way. You're, the, you're one of the owners of the new Seattle, Seattle expansion team, correct? Yeah, yeah we get to have a draft. Uh, we take uh, one player from each team. Uh, so that's great. Uh, they can Tell me, the, what's, the name of, what's the name of your team? What's the name of the team? We're working on that right now. Oh, this is great. Fantastic. Okay, let's talk about names, logos, mascots, uniforms. Okay, because there's nothing worse, not to scare you. You've dealt with titles. You're going to be just fine. But there's nothing worse than a bad name or a bad logo. I still can't get beyond like 
the, the the Tampa Devil Rays. I can't. I'm now they're not the Devils. They're just the Rays. Like you screw it up, and you got like something to answer for. So what do, what do we what are we thinking? It's Seattle. So what? I think it's it's more about a winning team, no matter what your name is. If you build a culture, and you start winning, it doesn't matter. I mean the the, the mighty Ducks became. I was going to say that's that's the the most egregious. That's your friend Mike Eisner, right? That's our. Yeah, he wanted to promote his movie. Smart move. But they won a Stanley Cup. It's a good franchise, a terrific franchise. Uh, they've had some great players play go through there. So it's all it's always about being in a, getting a winning culture, and you got to win. I for sure. I think you should call it either the Chiefs, and and as an homage to the greatest hockey movie ever made, Slapshot. Right, of course. Or the Young Bloods for one of the lesser hockey movies. Oh, another good ever one. Made. Right. Ever you, made. You ever go to games? You go to games. I see a game sometimes. Yeah, I, I do. I go to games and and people just go crazy because there 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 haven't been that many movies made about junior hockey. Right. And and so Young Blood being you know it's like a bible for those kids. They're on the road. Everybody knows it. Everybody watches it. So when they get to the to the bigs and, and I go and they see me, they lose, they lose their minds. Cause they, they think I'm so much better. I'm a, I, I skate like a movie actor skates. Well, I'm sure that's pretty good. We've had some very good actors skate with us. I learned, I did. I trained, I trained um, for young blood for six weeks, eight hours a day, every single day. I did not know how to skate when I started. Wow. And by the end I could, I, I was really good. I could, I could skate. My stick handling was Okay but not anywhere near filmable. So I always say to people, I do all the skating. If there's a puck in the shot, it's not me. Right. Well, I'm kind of the same way. Look, I got to go in front of the net and they got to feed me the puck. That's the only way. Yeah, they call me the human tripod. I'm like... I'm the same way, exactly. I'm like just tripoding there. With all the stress we go through in our business, it's the only time I can take my mind off of all the stress that's around me because at any moment I'll get killed out there because they're bigger, they're faster, and they'll run me over in a second. You have to have gotten run over. All, with all the hockey you've played, you have to have gotten run over. I got a, you know, a, a doctor on call, you know, orthopedic guy on call with all the, the times I've been slammed and hit, mostly by accident. But because of my own doing, I've run into somebody. But anyway, it's worth it. It, it takes a lot of the stress away. Well, this has been, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up with two, uh, something that I like to do with my smarter guests and you qualify, Uh um, which is the, uh, the lowdown. And they're uh, a series of of questions based on sort of like the, the old Proust questionnaire that used to be in the back of Vanity Fair. What is your greatest extravagance or whatever? I know what your greatest extravagance is. It's got to be the hockey rink you built in Kentucky, right? Has to be. You're right. You're absolutely right. I have a fabulous little three-on-three rink in Kentucky that I bring my friends to, and we have a great weekend playing and, and just telling stories. Kentucky, the hotbed of hockey. Right. Um, that's so great. I love that. Okay, so your top three movies. Not you, not, well, let's do both. Let's do your actual top three movies, and then let's do movies that you had nothing to do with, your top three. Well, I won't tell you my top three. Because, oh, come on. No, no chance. Because they're all your kids. There's no top three. Which is your favorite dog? You're not going to tell me. Uh, all right. I'll let you get away with it. No. 
As far as my movies, I love, you know, Bridge on the River Kwai, Dr. Zhivago, Driving Miss Daisy, The Godfather, you know, and just, just old classics. Oh, those are good ones. I, I just watched River Kwai last week. Yeah, amazing. You can't, amazing director. You can't argue with that. Um, what, was your, what is your favorite professional moment? That's a, that's a hard one because I've had so, so many good ones. I think, you know, getting my hands and feet in, 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 on, uh, in front of the Chinese theater was, wow. was a big one. That is a big one for, for the listeners. Like, I think they'll give a Hollywood walk of fame to anybody at this point, uh, considering I'm a recipient of that, but, but hands and feet at, at, uh, what we used to call Grauman's. We can't, what is it called now? Chinese theater. Chinese theater. Yeah. Yeah. So that's quite, that's, that was pretty great. That's, that's pretty spectacular. Um, here's a great one. I I love this one because I remember all of them. Do you remember the worst review you've ever gotten? Sure. Uh, we've got. By the like, way, I love how I love how quickly you answered that. I hadn't even gotten the question out of my mouth. Sure, love that. Flash dance. The journalist called it a toxic waste dump. Okay, the movie. Yes. Okay. Now, cut to ten or fifteen years later. He re sees the movie and he said, "I missed it." Really, a toxic waste dump is up there with mine. Mine was a movie called that I made with Marty Ranzahoff. And Louis John Carlino called Class. And it wasn't Toxic Waste Dump, but it was a vile concoction. Oh, my God. Well, you're right up there with me. I can only hope. Jerry, thank you so much. This was great. It was, it's, 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 it's a rarity to, to get you, uh, you know, out and to talk about your amazing life and work. And good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you, time, Rob. Fun. You bet. Take care. You bet. That was so great. I mean, it's not often you get to hear a deep dive with somebody like Jerry that he takes the time to to come out and do publicity like this. And um, it'll all be worth it, particularly if he gets me a seat for the Top Gun premiere. And um, I don't know if you noticed, but the sneaky takeaway in this is that Tom Cruise didn't really fly the F-16s in the new movie. Just saying. See you next time. You have been listening to Literally with Rob Lowe. Produced and engineered by me, Devin Tory Bryant. Executive produced by Rob Lowe for Low Profile. Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco. And Colin Anderson and Chris Bannon at Stitcher. The supervising producer is Aaron Blair. Talent producer, Jennifer Samples. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Stitcher. Stitcher.